Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. The nutrition really is math. It's a math problem. Yeah. Especially in people who can really dial themselves in outside of race conditions and they have a really good baseline established, there's still a way for nutrition to benefit you. And I think running is hard for people who only do it for races because races are few and far between. You can't run a marathon, have a horrible race, and be like, I'll just try again tomorrow. Like often you're waiting until the next season or the next race that rolls into your city. I think it's reminding yourself, like, why do you do it? Hey everyone, Meredith here. You are listening to the Afternoon Snack Podcast, and today we're going to talk about Alex. I know, we kind of always talk about Alex or me. It is our podcast after all. But if you've been following along, you know that Alex is doing a lot of running. And you probably know that when she ran the LA Marathon back in March, that she didn't quite meet her goals. And so what did she do? She signed up for the Calgary Marathon 12 weeks later. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about how Alex shaved six minutes off of her marathon time between March and May and leave you with some tips that can help you meet your potential in your training runs and your races as well. We hope you enjoy this episode. six minutes off of your marathon time. I did. How'd you do that? I just, I ran faster. That was that. Well, good episode. We'll catch you on the next one. That is that. You did, Alex, the LA Marathon, which we recorded about. And then you kind of like quietly behind the scenes committed to running the Calgary Marathon 10 or 12 weeks later. Why don't you talk about that decision? Sure. So I finished L.A. and decided I would never run again. That was like the minute I crossed the finish line. I was like, never. Actually, I decided before I crossed the finish line that I would. this was going to be my last marathon. Isn't that what everyone does when they run a marathon? I think so, because it's happened almost every time. I don't know if it happened in Boston. It definitely happened my first marathon in San Francisco. I was like, I'm never doing this again. That was horrible. Well, then like you didn't for like I know. 10 years. Then I did. And then I did again. And then in LA, I was like, that's it. This is awful. What am I doing? This isn't worth anything. This is horrible. Why? Just because it was like so painful? It was so or? painful. Mm. Like, what am I doing? So it wasn't, it wasn't a result of the result. No, no, yeah. no, no. It was just like, I didn't enjoy that experience. So it's okay. like, why am I doing something I don't enjoy? Then, of course, like an hour later, I was like, that was kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The natural, the life cycle of an endurance athlete. And it happens quickly, too. It is like sometimes within the hour. Yeah. And you're like, I kind of liked how hard it was. Yeah. I mean, we could go on about like the sick satisfaction of endurance sports, but there is a satisfaction to it. Yeah. So I finished the race at around 10. And then we were eating lunch. We basically skedaddled out of there. I was like, I don't need to go to the beer gardens. I need to go home. Yeah. And went home, back to the hotel. I think we were eating lunch at the hotel at like around noon. And I was already looking up like my next marathon. Why? I think I just, I felt like I didn't do as well as what my like fitness and potential was mm. for that day. Like I had run Boston in April, 2022. And I ran it in a 308. And then I did LA and I ran it in 307. There was a whole span of a year of training. And I have 
gotten faster. Yeah. In that time, I ran a sub 90 half marathon. My training times were better. I felt better. Mm-hmm. Just like a year of running, especially with my like running history. It's not like I've been a marathoner for like multiple years, like 10 years where it's like those small increments take time. It's like a whole year I should be able to improve. That's what I felt. Yeah. It's not that I felt like I should. I was like, I know that I improved, even just like on paper. So I don't want to wait until November, which I had already signed up for Philadelphia at that right. time. I don't want to wait until the fall. I'd rather, I feel like I I could do better. Mm. So I was looking for something in the realm of like two to three months. I've never run a marathon back, like back to back in that close of succession. So I wasn't even sure if it was a good idea. So I didn't sign up immediately for Calgary, which was 10 weeks later, May 28th. I had run LA on March 2018th or something. Yeah, around then. So about 10 weeks later. And so it usually takes me a couple of weeks to kind of get back to my usual volume after running a marathon. So what, I'll pause okay. right there. What's the first run after a marathon like? Because I think a lot of people who run recreationally take off a lot of time after they finish races. They aren't running within a week, but you are. So what's that experience like compared yeah. to like the runs maybe right before you run the marathon? It depends. I usually, in the last few marathons, I've taken Monday to Friday off of running. I still train on like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but it's usually like biking or upper body based. And then I'll try to run on Saturday and Sunday. After Boston, I couldn't run. I think I tried 5K and I was like, this is horrible. Mm. My legs filled with blood so quickly and they were still so sore. And I just felt tired and like every step was a chore, yeah. which happens the odd run there. You're going to have bad runs where you feel like that. But that was a sign that I maybe got back too soon. And then after LA, though, yeah, it was the same thing. I But I bounced back a little bit faster. And I think with every marathon, you do bounce back a bit faster. Yeah. It's like your body is more adapted to it. But I would say I usually take the next week I'll take completely off or run like 20 to 30K. And then the next week I'll do like 40 to 50K and then try to get back into like around where I usually sit, which is around 70K a week. Yeah. You're running after LA, made the decision to run Calgary. So like what does that, that's kind of an awkward period of time. It's like enough to recover, probably enough to prep, but like what was the sort of the training decision and volume like in between there. And then I guess the follow-up to that question is there had to be a mindset shift in there as well too, to set out to run Calgary and want to run it at your potential, but having just not met your potential per your assessment. So like, how do you, I guess, get back, back on track physically and mentally in that time? So I think the big one for me was in LA, I had kind of set this goal of sub three hours. And then about two months out, I was like, no, I can't do sub three. I'm going to like take the pressure off and just like run as fast as I can. But you kind of for marathons have to have a goal time. You can kind of feel though, but you kind of like need to have a pace that you're going to try to hit because you can't really make up time, but you also could lose a lot of time. So it's like a careful balance. And then for LA, a couple of days before, and I, I think I probably explained this in the podcast, I basically said the day before, I'm going to try for a sub three. And then going into Calgary, I basically said to myself, I don't actually think I'm capable of sub three yet, 
So I'm going to shoot for sub like around a 303, which was kind of the difference between a 308, 307 and sub three. And conveniently one minute faster than Christy Aramo. Yeah. So (laughs) I basically just wanted to hit like a, a marker so that in Philadelphia, I could have like a more achievable sub three. It seemed close. It wasn't as much of a jump. You're not jumping by like seven minutes. You're jumping by three minutes. Yeah. Presumably if you hit that. Yeah. And it's kind of crazy. Like with a three hour race, you wouldn't think that a couple minutes makes a big difference, but it does. It's like you think about per kilometers, 42 kilometers. That's really only a couple seconds difference to break that sub three between a sub three and a three one and a half. But it it is a difference. Well, yeah, I think you're operating at the extremes of your physiology and like mental tenacity, more your physiology at that point. Yeah, the incremental, the improvements and changes are going to be small. Yeah. Very small. And then I also didn't sign up for Calgary until about three weeks out. Hmm. I didn't put any pressure on myself to run Calgary until I was sure that I was back to form. And I had a long run under my belt and felt good about that run. And then I was like, okay, I'll sign up for Calgary. But I I wasn't like, I didn't sign up the the day of LA. I was like, I'm going to see how it goes and train and just feel like start feeling good and and build my confidence back up. And then if I feel like I'm ready, then I'll sign up. I wasn't doing it for Calgary. I was doing it. I love training anyway. So it's kind of nice to get back into it and like do those long runs because they're fun for me. But okay, I'm going to pause there because there's a little nugget, a chicken nugget in there. That's really important. And I think it has to be like worth uh, highlighting. (laughs) So the goal for you after LA wasn't to run Calgary. The goal was to get back to running. And get back to putting in miles and get back to, to putting in fast miles and see if your effort could be what it needed to be to run, to commit to a race like that. Yeah. So it literally was like the goal was the effort. It wasn't the race. Tattoo that on your hearts if you're listening. I think what's notable is like you were pretty silent on social media about this as well. Do you think that that taking the pressure off of people even knowing that you were potentially thinking about Calgary also changed things for you? No, I don't think so. I know everyone out, out there is like just supporting me, I think. And if I don't achieve a goal, I never feel necessarily like a failure. Like I didn't feel like I failed in L.A. I didn't feel like I let anyone down, even though I you know, had maybe mentioned to some people I wanted to run a sub three. It was yeah. like it just didn't happen for me. And that's OK. And that's sport. It was more that I didn't know that I was going to run. So I didn't want to say like, I'm, I'm probably going to run Calgary or I'm running Calgary and then not, it would have been totally reasonable to not to sign up and then not run it. But Calgary is not one of those races where you need to sign up like months in advance. There was always going to be a spot. It was more just, I, I wasn't sure I was going to do it. So I didn't want to commit yeah. to like publicly. I think the thing with social media that's striking is, and like the amount of support that we both get on social media is really incredible. And I think you've probably felt that, especially after LA, when you Uh, When we posted that video and you kind of shared that, you know, it didn't happen for you. I think there's a there was an enormous amount of support, but it's hard to understand the mindset of like a somewhat elite athlete in that moment where you can like objectively run a really fantastic time, like a 307, which is what you ran in L.A. That's a great time, especially on that course. So I think people struggle to to understand that that can be a great time and it still is not reflective of what you wanted to go out there and do. And so that's like, that was kind of largely the experience on social media at that time as well, which is like, well, that's a great time. You can be proud of that effort. And, you know, while that's, it's nice to hear that, 
it doesn't change your reality, which is like you weren't happy with the way that race went for many reasons. And I think that that's something unique to athletes, especially athletes who are really pushing themselves and really like striving for uh, a specific level of output on a day. And you see it across all sports. Like we have a friend who does like very, very high level equestrian and I can watch her ride and I'm like, that's freaking amazing. And then, you know, chatting afterwards and she's telling me all these things that went wrong. And I'm like, well, I didn't see that. It just looked amazing to me. So like, I, I also get it because I'm sometimes on the other end of it too. It's worth mentioning that like, yes, that can be objectively a very good time and still not what you know that you're capable of. Just like, you know, our, our friend who does the equestrian competition knows that, yes, that can, it can look amazing. It can be pretty good, but it's also not what I know that like I'm capable of doing. Yeah. And I think, I don't want to say I get annoyed, but I'm, I'm just, when someone, when I share something like that, like, Hey, I'm a little disappointed in my result. People are like, Oh, well, you know, like three, like anything around three is really good. You should, you shouldn't be disappointed. You should be proud. And I'm yeah. like, well, I am proud. I've worked, I still worked hard for that time. Yeah. And it is objectively good. But like, why can't I say like, I'm disappointed in that time? I can have a feeling towards it. It has nothing to do with, I'm not saying like, oh, if you're running a four hour marathon, you suck. Right. Because like I sucked because I ran a 307. Right. It's like, it's all subjective. Everyone has a right to feel the way they feel about any result. It's like the kid in, in, in school where it's like, oh, I only got an A minus. And you're, he's telling her his friend who got a B plus. And it's like, well, shit, like if you're complaining about getting an A minus, then like, yeah. what am I? Right. I got it. I did worse than you, but it's not it's not that. You can step back and say like, well, I'm still really proud of you, you know, still number one in my heart. But I get it. I know what it feels like to be disappointed. Yeah. On the day. Like I could have done better. I made a silly mistake. I, you know, could have, should have, would have. I hate those words, but. It's more like the way you say it is you say, I, I wish that I had made a different decision yeah. early in the race. And, and I plan to do that next time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's not a, a should or should not. It's not like, you know, judgmental. You made a decision. It was the wrong decision. And that cost you at the end of the race. Yeah. And it just it is what it is. Like there's And no I don't think anyone, anyone running, regardless of like what eliteness you are, if you're running like long distances, it's all about experience. And if someone's even if let's just take 5k or a half marathon, even if it's not the marathon distance, or maybe it is, and you're running a four hour marathon, I imagine, and I haven't done like a longitudinal study on people starting and running races, but I imagine it's very unlikely that someone's like, okay, I did a 420. Then I did a 410. Then I did four. Then I did 350. Then I did 345. Like that's not the way sport is. Cause there's no. so many factors. I'm sure it's like, yeah, some days I don't PR. There's a race that I might have trained for for six months and it was raining and I didn't PR or like I felt sick or I just didn't have a good race or I started out too fast or whatever it may be or I wore the wrong shoes like that's part of it and you learn and you get better over time but it might not happen linear in a linear manner. Yeah and it psychologically makes sense because the longer they're like the longer the event the more opportunity there is for like external influences or for things go wrong or something goes wrong early and then you have to deal with it for the entire race. Like I remember that story about Kipchoge, like his shoe ate his sock like early in a race once, like early. And he had to run that way. He had to run with like half of a sock on his foot. I thought his insole was coming out. Or maybe, no, it was the insole. Yeah. So he ran the entire race with like, with the insole had slipped out the back of his shoe. And it was flapping. Yeah. And so he's like running this race with number one, something really annoying in the back of his shoe, but also 
no insole in his like performance running sneaker. So that stuff happens. And like it probably impacted, definitely impacted his time. And like with endurance, that's going to happen. And also you have like course changes. You have weather that comes into play, heat, which can also influence physiology. Mm -hmm. Like it changes the way that, you know, your body relies on electrolytes. So you have to take that into account. And it's kind of like you said, there's, there's just learning opportunity and you have to learn it. Just every experience sort of shows you where your blind spots are. And so you kind of take little bits of information with you to the next race. And I think that's, you know, it doesn't say I'm not going to do that again. Cause I, you know, I didn't, I failed or I didn't get what I want. It's like, I didn't get what I want and I know why, and I know what to change for next time. And so it's like the ultimate indicator that failure or struggle can be a really good teacher, but even still like knowing what you knew after LA, there's nothing that prevented. I mean, Calgary almost got smoked out. That race almost didn't happen because of the air quality and it's Calgary in May. So you also run the risk of it just being a really windy day. Mm -hmm. So you could be infinitely more prepared than LA and running against a 30 kilometer headwind. And that would have probably resulted in an even slower time than LA. So it's like, how do you continue to show up knowing that so many things that can happen on race day are out of your control? So I'll just, I'll ask you that question. How do you continue to show up for events like this, knowing that so many things on race day are out of your control? I think it's because it's not about race day. Races are just the cherry on top of the, the ice cream. Is that the, the, the word, the phrase? Well, Sunday, icing on, icing, icing on, on the, the cake. cake. It's the like, ce celebration of the training. Which yeah. Like I don't to run to run races. It's fun to have something to train for and goals to hit. And I think running is hard for people who only do it for races because races are few and far between. You can't run a marathon, have a horrible race and be like, I'll just try again tomorrow. Like often you're waiting until the next season or the next race that rolls into your city. Yeah. Like a lot of people don't have the means to just travel around and run marathons. No. Like it takes a lot out of you physiologically to like run a marathon. You have to wait and like, yeah, you can't just try it again. So I think people get really, they get defeated because they're yeah. like, oh, I trained a whole six months for this. And I felt like that a little bit in LA. I trained a whole year and like, look at my result. But it's like, I knew I, I had done better and luck, I was lucky enough to have Calgary to go for. But I think it's reminding yourself, like, why do you do it? Yeah. Like if you get injured and you the day before a race or a month before the race, like, yeah, it sucks that you can't run the race, but it's not like you can never run again. Yeah. There'll be another race. Yeah. Like now the goal is to just get back to being healthy and build back up. So I think that's the answer to your question. It's yeah. not it's not about the race. And like, yeah, you're going to have bad races. That's that is just it. You're going to have bad days. You're going to have just like you have a bad training run. Sometimes that tra bad training run falls on race day. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about like ultra runners who train for events like Western States or Leadville. And there these are like these are ultra runners who are these aren't people who are casually running it. This is not. I'm trying to go out there and finish Leadville. These are people who are trying to win it. The risk of failure, like dropout to failure during an ultra marathon race like that is so high. I think you see that happen a lot more with ultra endurance sports because people are just, they're riding that line and then shit happens and they can't even finish the race. And if you don't have your head on straight about what it means to show up on the start line and what, what the risks are for like DNF, like you just make yourself crazy. Like that's always a risk. It's always yeah. a risk that you're just, you're not going to run your best race. But at the end of the day, like you spend a fraction of a time racing that you do out training and enjoying the process. So yeah. I think that's really important. 
like I'm not an like elite runner and that I'm not a professional, but the way I think of them, and I see this when I watch races, people who are elite DNF all the time because they're riding that line to PR or to qualify or do something because they're blowing up, trying to achieve a time, and then continuing the last 10K isn't an opportunity for growth for them. Where for me, maybe it was in LA. Okay, I'm like, I'm going to finish this thing, even though like, am I going to, you know, is it really necessary? No, like, but also I'm here. I'll just do it. It's a good opportunity for like, I'm to test my mental tenacity. But for these people, it's like, okay, I, I'm just going to drop out because then I, maybe I can save it, recover faster and run another race. Right. Like it's when you get to that point, like that happens to everyone. And sometimes it means DNFing and that's okay. It's just like part of it. I just don't think people have a good understanding that it happens to the best of us, even though you don't necessarily like DNF. Yeah. Like I'm trying to think of it in, in like layman's CrossFit terms. And it's kind of like when you, when you want to PR your back squat and you show up and you're like, Hey, my old back squat is 295. I want to hit 300. You might fail that day. I guess the good thing about that is like, it didn't, you know, you didn't have to spend two and a half hours first to see if you're going to fail. You just kind of load up and go for it. And it's like a one day thing. And you could try again next week if you wanted to. But it still happens in pretty much every sport if you're riding the line. Even even amateurs, even beginners ride the line in these races. Yeah. Especially when you don't have the experience to know what your pace should be. Right. We were watching recently the Tour de France Netflix documentary, which is called, I think it's called Unchained. Anyways, highly recommend it. It's the same producers and crew that does the Drive to Survive, like the F1 documentary. And I thought it was really good, partially because it is it is focusing on endurance athletes, elite athletes, and arguably one of the like hardest sporting events that exist. And there was a guy, I mean, there's a lot of people who crash and have to pull out because they get injured, you know, or eventually they, maybe a few people get dropped because they don't make the time cutoffs. But there's this one guy on a team and he was just, he was in really bad shape and he ended up dropping out because he's like, it's just not worth the risk to my health and my body and the rest of my season to just to be here and do the race just because. So, you know, he ended up pulling out, I don't know, less than halfway into the tour, I think. So it happens every level. And it, it's not to say that that doesn't have an impact. I think you can be as prepared as possible mentally. It's still kind of a bummer when it happens, but you have to be able to take that sort of hit and keep going show up yeah absolutely so outside of the training there were a lot of changes that i made from la to calgary that had really nothing to do with my fitness and i feel like those were the main factors in improving my time so i don't think the training in between la and and calgary really had much to do with my fitness or my preparation yeah a small degree but not I didn't become that much fitter in two months. No. So what were those things? Okay. So number one, Meredith managed to finagle me into the elite category. I did do that. She basically became my manager and emailed the director because you could be an elite athlete if you had a marathon time that was under three hours. That was the automatic entry. But I was looking at the results from the last few years. So I was like, I wonder how many how many elite runners there actually are. So I was looking at the results and there was only like one woman who was finishing below like sub three hours. She, there was usually one that was around the like 245 mark. And then everyone else was over three. And so I was thinking, 
well, shoot, there's only like one person who seems to be getting an automatic entry. And then, you know, the other ones, it said you could email to, you know, apply for elite status or whatever. So I emailed and basically said, my partner's running Calgary. She ran like this is her race history. She ran a 307 in L.A., but truly is more capable of like a 303, 304. It just wasn't the right day for her. Asked if you could be entered into the elite category and the race director, whose name is also Meredith, and she goes by Mert, in case you're wondering where that came from on the Instagram. She emailed back and said, yeah, of course, just sit, like submit the application and she'll be in. And what that got you was elite aid stations and free entry and free entry yeah so you'd have to pay the entry fee so the way the elite aid stations work and you see these like they're in all major marathons you see them at the front group there's the regular aid stations with whatever they have on the course gatorade uh gels banana whatever and then there's a separate table for the elite racers where there's specific bottles out that the racers grab and those bottles can have Whatever you want to have in yeah, them. Yeah, you, you give your bottles to them the night before. And yeah, they, and they stage and them. They place them. So that was the main thing that that got you. I'd yeah. Say. And this was a big deal because in LA, this wasn't an issue in Boston because in Boston they had Gatorade. And the Gatorade was really well formulated. It wasn't watered down. So I was able to say, okay, I'm going to have 20 grams of carbs every like four to five K. I'm going to alternate between gels. So I think I had seven gels and then Gatorade. And then when I had the Gatorade, it was, I would try to have enough that I would get in 15 to 20 grams of carbs, which wasn't that hard. But in LA, they had electrolyte as their carb supplement, which basically is coconut water. Hmm. And it was so watered down that I don't think I was consuming more than five grams of carbs at those stations. So I tried to do what I did for Boston, but because I didn't have the carb source, I wasn't able to consume the enough and i think that it's crazy to think i'm pretty sure that had a major impact because i was consuming let's see here 30 grams carbs fewer than what i did in boston per hour which is significant at that level yeah that's like one of my major beefs with races is that the aid stations are often they often go to whoever whatever drink sponsor wants to pay the most like I've seen some races have their aid stations are legit like noon. That's what it was in Calgary. Yeah. I don't know how many, I didn't even check to see how many carbs were in noon. I only know noon because they, I take them as electrolytes. Yeah. But I was like, I don't know. I can't. I mean, most, mo- and you don't know what the concentration is going to be. That's it too. Cause they're, they're mixing it by hand. Yeah. And so a lot of, I think it just gets watered down. And so it's, you're at the whim of not only who, what the drink sponsor is, who's decided to pay the most to have aid stations with their product, but also who is mixing the products and are they mixing it with the right formulation? And like more often than not, the answer is probably no. Yeah. Or sometimes you grab a cup that someone's holding out of like Gatorade or Noon or Electrolyte and it's like one ounce. Oh my God, they don't even And I'm like, what the? Yeah. And then half of it pours on your face always. Right. So yeah, I guess that's just like running big marathons. You have to kind of deal with that unless you want to carry your own water, which I despise doing. Yeah. Anyway, this was huge. And I'm like, oh, how do I get that? How do I do that in Philly? You just have, you have to run faster. To be in the elite. I don't know. I'll reach out to the Philly. I don't know. Or maybe, I don't know, you, even if I could just have a couple of my own water bottles Mm -hmm. on the race course, that would be helpful. I don't know what the carb supplement's going to be. But anyways, that was a big deal because I was able to consume more carbs than I've ever consumed. So how many carbs per hour were you taking in in Calgary? 
60 to 80. You're nearly 80. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to get in 20 grams again every three to four K. Yeah. With the water bottle, I was probably getting in more because it was so much more. I was able to make it very concentrated of a different carb that I just found really easy to digest. And like it wasn't very sweet. And then the big thing that we did in addition to the carb intake was electrolytes. Yeah. What was the carb just before we get off that? Because people are going to ask what the carb was. It's it was Scratch Super Carb. Scratch Labs. Scratch super Labs Super Carb. And so one, you can, and I've been using this to train for my ultra coming up. You can put in 60 grams of carbs into half a liter yeah. and it doesn't taste sweet like Gatorade. It's not, I thought it was less than half a liter. It's like 300 mils. Yeah, you can do 300 mils. I do 500 mils, like six, 60 to 80 grams carbs and it's, it's fine. It tastes yeah. like, the way I describe it, it's like lemon water. That isn't tart. It's not sweet. It's just like the consistency doesn't doesn't change. It doesn't get syrupy. Yeah. It still tastes like water. The, the thing that I like about it, because I've been having it when I bike ride, is it it isn't like oppressively sweet. Cause that's my my mm-hmm. beef with uh Gatorade. Some of the, like Gatorade and some of the more commercial products is like I eventually and early kind of lose my taste for like sweetness. Like I just I don't want it. This doesn't, it's not like in your face. Yeah. It's very easy to drink. And because it's very easy to drink. You end up consuming a lot of carbs when you need them. Yeah. So this is our unofficial, not sponsored by Scratch Labs, but super carb for no. endurance. I've tried a lot. I've tried a lot of different supplements yeah. over the years. And this one is also a highly branched cyclic dextrin. Yeah. Which we tried before and it was too sweet. There was a completely different brand we used to use back when we did CrossFit. You have to play around and try different stuff, unfortunately, to figure out what works best for you. Some people love Gatorade. Some people can't do that like that amount of carbs. Yeah. I've obviously been doing this for a long time. My body's very used to it. So the other thing I did were, was electrolyte. This is because in LA, in LA wasn't super hot. No. It was pretty mild for Southern California. But you finished the race and you just had white streaks <laughs> down your face. I sweat a lot generally and I'm really salty. Yeah. Given the results, given the way that your energy was, I just kind of immediately started thinking, like you're losing a lot more electrolytes than... I would lose or like a lot of people lose on the course and you're not really replacing them outside of what's in like drinks that you're having and the little bit that's in the gels. The mission became to figure out what electrolyte supplement was going to be best to take during the course to get you replenishing at a rate of around like a thousand milligrams per hour. Yeah. Which honestly, like for you, I think is kind of bare minimum. Yeah. So I sound so intense when I talk about this. It's I do it and because it makes a difference like it really does like a six minute difference in a three hour marathon is significant in my opinion. So it's like all of this stuff. It does. It makes a difference. Nutrition, carb loading, intra workout. It makes a difference when you have people out there who are like I don't need to consume carbs. I'm and I'm a three hour marathon. I'm like, yeah, but think about it. You could be a 240 marathoner if you actually like thought about these things. Right. And I don't think I would be a three hour or close to a three hour marathoner if I wasn't doing this clearly. Anyways, so for electrolytes, there's a few options. There's powder and liquid, but that's tough because I don't have my own liquid. Mm -hmm. There's capsules like pills. So we tried one of those for my long runs. And I say we because you're biking with me. And I put them in my little like zipper thing that I have in the like my one of my carry cases that's very minimal. And by the end of the run, some of them had broken open. And there was like disgusting like salt grainy stuff all in my little packet thingy 
So I was like, I don't think those are going to last the marathon in like my little pockets. So then the other option are chews. Like the tablets. The tablets. Yeah. So the, the capsules, I believe, have 200 milligrams sodium in each, which is pretty good. The chews have 50. So you have to be chewing a lot of chews. Yeah. But they're, I t- tried them very easy to chew. Mm-hmm. Like it's a few chews and they're down. Yeah. And it's you, basically like a Flintstone. Vibe. Yeah. You take it with water. Like you try to time it with the water and it's fine. Yeah. And you can just take them like, I don't know. It was kind of nice to have like, a, they were kind of tardy, the orange ones. Yeah. So it's kind of nice to have that flavor. Just like I, and I had to really be smart because I don't like carrying a lot. It's just like, it's annoying. Yeah. So I was, I have one little belt that I wear that I can keep my gels in and it's very minimal. It presses right up against my back. I kind of tuck it in my shorts and I'm like, I'm going to have to carry, you know, 25 capsules here of these stupid things. So then I'm like, Hey, I'll bring one with a bigger pocket size. Tried that. was, it was bouncing. I'm like, Hey, this isn't going to work. And And also like this thing's heavy. Yeah. And you're, you're trying this by the way, the night before the the race. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cause I thought I had a plan, but I didn't. So what I did was I basically put this is going to be hard to explain, like four chewable tablets wrapped in plastic. And then I taped the little plastic nub to the belt with athletic tape. It basically looked like it was basically like a drug mule. Yeah. Like the same size baggies that people stuff up their rectums. Yeah. That was Alex. It really did look like I was dealing drugs, like about to go deal drugs (laughs) on the course. But it was great because all I had to do was like, to put one finger in the little, like poke a hole in the plastic and pull out the capsules. Sometimes they fell on the ground, but I had enough to get me through. And yeah, it didn't add any extra bounce or weight. Yeah. I definitely was very like conspicuous. Is that yeah. about grabbing them? Cause I didn't, it was kind of embarrassing to see what was on my belt. Yeah. But no, it was, it was a good plan and it worked. And then I also put LMNT sodium into the bottles that had the scratch labs so the scratch labs was lemon lime flavored there's an lmnt that's salted lime flavored Mm. so i would put half a packet which was 500 milligrams of sodium into the the car bottle and that was that was great yeah that was a big hit of sodium lmnt is a a lot that's like a thousand milligrams per packet but it's it's very salty i don't know if you've ever had lmnt and you just like i think the first time i had it i put it in like Oh my God, a tiny glass. Yeah, I was like, this is impossible. And then I read their instructions, which is basically like how salty you want to drink. Really, you should be putting it in like 32 ounces and drinking it over a longer period of time. I think I just like shot it. But that's good. Yeah, and with the Scratch Labs, because I mean, Scratch has some electrolytes, but not it's not an electrolyte supplement. So it it goes well in there and it's quite drinkable. So with the LMNT in those, in the like elite water bottles that I had, the... Scratch Labs, sodium, there was minimal. The chews and there's sodium in the gels. It added up to over, I think there was, I was 1,400, 1,000 to 1,400 milligrams of sodium per hour for three hours. Yeah. And I felt so good at the end of that race. Like I was definitely tired, but I, I did not, I felt good even after I was like, I was walking, I walked to the car and back, I drove home. It was amazing. I had to work that whole afternoon and I was totally fine. Yeah. For people who are listening who may not know, they may be thinking like, well, what's the point of sodium? Like it's all it really like electrolytes are related to like ion transfer, intramuscular electron, which 
is basically a major component of locomotion, of continuing to contract your muscles to their maximum potential. When you start impacting or start losing too many electrolytes, you stop being able to basically contract your muscles, your muscles with the same amount of intensity. And so then you would see that's when cramping can start to occur. It can get like neuromuscular kind of cramping. Fatigue can start to set in. You just see a drop off in power. So that's, yeah, electrolytes are really important for athletic performance and like frankly health, but also definitely an endurance performance. But it is worth saying like sodium supplementation is something that you should go into with a base understanding of what that does in your body and specifically what too much sodium can do because electrolytes also impact heart function. And so you don't just want to be like throwing salt at your body willy nilly because the the ratio of sodium to potassium and the balance with calcium and manganese and all these other electrolytes are pretty important. So it's not something that I would necessarily be cavalier with, but if you're if you haven't paid attention to electrolyte supplementation and your specific rate of electrolyte loss, there is probably some performance being left on the table if you're a serious endurance athlete. Yeah. Like with most of my runners, I usually recommend just like with carb supplementation intra-run, starting with a, a minimal dose and making sure the person feels good and then building from there, asking questions about if they're not going to do a, a sweat test, asking questions about like how much you sweat and does the sweat seem salty? And there's ways to to figure that that out as well. Sodium can also, a lot of people who start cramping, their gut reaction is to start taking electrolytes like salt <laughs> tabs and that can really mess your gut up. So again, it's like you have to find that balance and you have to have to have to practice. Yeah, you can't I mean, just go into race day being like, I'm going to take 200 milligrams of sodium. Like, oh my gosh, like you, that could go wrong really easily. Yeah. I mean, the, from the just even a GI standpoint, the intuition with fueling race fueling generally, whether it's with carbs or electrolytes, if you're cramping is to kind of do it when the problem starts to occur. And that's problematic for a couple of reasons, but primarily like if you're having cramping or if you're having like severe muscle fatigue, you're getting really tired. Oh, I'm so tired. I better eat something. You can guarantee that a lot of your blood is in your muscles already. So if you then put something incredibly dense with carbohydrates or incredibly dense with sodium in your stomach, that's bad news because there's not a lot of blood flow <laughs> there. So at a minimum, you can probably expect some stomach cramps to happen. And at worst, you can expect some like diarrhea to happen because your, your body's just like, uh-uh, no, I'm not going to use blood flow for the digestive system right now. It's I need blood in my legs. I need blood like where it needs to go. And so that's why we're big proponents of fueling early and often when you still have blood in the digestive system, you kind of like the body gets used to keeping some blood there because it's like it knows that there's like food coming and your like your response, your glycemic response tends to be better early in endurance efforts when compared to like late, late in endurance efforts. Yeah. Like, do you think I feel cool taking a gel 15 minutes into a race? No, I feel like a loser. I feel like super intense, but I'm like, you know what? I don't care. Yeah. I don't care because this is what's right. This is what the science says. Yeah. Yeah. I was asking Meredith because the elites, we had a, like a meeting where we put our water bottles in with labels on what stations they go at. I ordered a bunch of water bottles off Amazon and by I, I mean Meredith did. 
So I got like the big ones and I filled them about halfway. So there was probably 10 ounces of fluid. I didn't drink all 10 ounces every time, but I had enough to make sure I got in what I needed to. And everyone else's bottles were so small. Like, first of all, where do you get these? They were like designed. They had flowers on them. Mine were just white. (laughs) I think I put old PT tape to like identify them. Pink PT tape that we got at a competition once. And I was saying to Meredith, like, how is it possible that like, why am I taking in so much more? Like, why don't other elites have more fuel? You'd think they would know. And Meredith was like, well, if you look at the other elites, (laughs) you'll see that your muscle mass is higher in terms of number of pounds than their entire body weight. So you're just going to need more. And that that made it made sense. It was a silly question thinking back, but it it just goes to show that it's there's a personal aspect as well to how much you need to consume and there's some math, but there's also testing that needs to be done. It's it's a, like a complicated thing. I went down but- some rabbit holes between LA and Calgary trying to figure this stuff out. And I found there's like sports scientists out there who are very very good at intra-race fueling and they work with runners they work with cyclists but i thought it was really interesting because it's you know we we kind of tend to operate on averages but i i figured out how much like (laughs) math actually goes into this for a lot of people so i found this one guy and i was on his you know looking at his protocol and essentially so the the equation that he uses works off of lean body mass but specifically lean body mass in the lower body so you're looking basically like mid abdomen down. And so number one, you have to have like a DEXA or something where you can even begin to quantify that. So you're looking at lean lean body mass in the legs predominantly, and then you calculate VO2. And so you're actually calculating, this is so interesting. I'm like, it makes sense, but it's crazy that people get this granular with it. So you're calculating your, your rate of respiration, VO2 max. You can calculate how many moles of oxygen you use, correlate that to glycogen use rate and ATP production and essentially come down to this is how many grams per hour this athlete needs to be taking in in order to maximize what they're physiologically capable of utilizing based on their amount of glycogen that they can store in their lower body lean body mass and the amount of glycogen that they will use per hour based on their VO2 max, assuming they're predominantly staying in the aerobic system. Very cool. I was like, that's insane. But of course, like, this is like big, big money for a lot most of people, people so. can't afford that. No. Yeah. Yeah. And you can kind of get you can get close by guessing. So yeah. that's yeah, that's kind of well, there's also that study with creatine loading, too. Yeah. So the study with creatine loading is really interesting. Mm-hmm. I haven't tried it yet. I want you to. I know. I, I use this with I had a, a woman doing an Ironman. She actually just did it this past weekend. She did great. This is something we tested one month out because I really I wanted to make sure that number one. The carb load was going to, because carb loading for an Ironman can be kind of extreme. So you always want to test that ahead of time if the athlete hasn't done a full on carb load. And then I like doing it one month, especially for females, because there's such a, there can be such an impact of on glycogen uptake and usage based on where a female athlete is in their menstrual cycle. So I like to do it a month out. And then with the creatine, you definitely want to test it ahead of time because you're loading creatine, which some people just can't tolerate. So the protocol for creatine carb loading, and this has kind of been my secret. I don't share this openly. It's like the thing that's in my back pocket. Okay, well, now it's open. Now it's going to be open. 
you load creatine 15 to 20 grams per day. So if you're you're taking creatine daily, ideally, this is assuming that you're taking around five grams per day, you would start taking 15 to 20 grams per day. You don't have to take it all at once. You can take it twice per day, which is actually kind of preferable and minimizes the risk of GI issues. So 15 to 20 grams of creatine per day ahead of the carb load. So seven days of creatine loading. And then at day at four days out, you start loading carbohydrates. And you do a typical carbohydrate load where you're bringing down fat and protein intake, bringing up carb intake. And on the final day, I think carb intake is around 70% of total daily calorie intake. And you're also consuming calories in excess of maintenance at that point. But what they found is, I think this the research came out of, I think, LSU. The creatine loading increases glycogen uptake by up to 53%, intramuscular uptake of glycogen by 53%. Which so is, basically the carb load becomes more effective. You, yeah, exactly. You basically significantly enhance the efficacy of carbohydrate loading by relying, by doing the creatine load ahead of it. It varies by individual. So that's an average. Obviously, it's going to depend somewhat on lean body mass, on specific physiology, but you can, we can pretty much say with certainty that it increases glycogen uptake and storage significantly in everyone who does it. So that's my secret carb loading for endurance athletes. Yeah, it worked really well for her. She told me that I uh, was chatting with her yesterday. She did the Curtilane Ironman and she was like, it's crazy. I'm not really any more sore than I would be after just after like a, a high training day. And she did a whole ass Ironman, which I think most people are feel they feel quite broken after that. Yeah. So um, I don't know if it I think she did a really good job with her training and her nutrition leading up generally. Uh, but I like to think that having the right kind of lead in to a race like that can be really beneficial. And that's a protocol that I, I like and people who can tolerate the creatine loading. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I was kind of thinking just now when you're talking is that you're really smart, but also it's funny. I think in the last few years we transitioned like three years ago, we transitioned away from performance nutrition, but that was like, we transitioned away from like CrossFit performance nutrition. Like yeah. we stopped kind of like sending messages out to that speaks more to those athletes, like mm -hmm. higher level athletes and CrossFit and, 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 and those types of sports. And then we kind of backed off and we're like, okay, we want to just do like, we're speaking to everyone now. We're going to dial back and focus on the basics. People who need this, like yeah. there's more people like this. We can make a bigger change, a bigger impact, that sort of thing. More fulfilling, yeah. all that. And now what's kind of cool is we're getting the best of both worlds with endurance sports Yeah, because you're getting the average person. And I don't mean that in a bad way. You're just getting someone who's who's a mom or who's a, who works in a court, like a job. They're not an elite athlete. They're, they have a job, they have a family, but maybe they're dabbling in endurance sports because it's fun and it's a good hobby. And so now you get, you get to work with somebody who's going to benefit a lot from the basics, maybe improves their body composition, but they're also, because it's, it's so helpful. They're also able to incorporate some of this performance-based protocols like really scientific stuff yeah. yeah and yeah it's kind of like the best of both worlds yeah and it's really cool it's like you you take someone who's running their first marathon and a lot of the same stuff will benefit them like in an extreme yeah the, like the the nuance of it changes like the 
But the way that you apply it is the same. Yeah. And the benefits, just to even how you feel in training, mm-hmm. how you feel after your long runs, it makes a big difference. And honestly, it makes a bigger difference for someone who has to come back from a long run and take their kids to the park. Yeah. You don't want to be on your deathbed, <laughs> you know? So like a carb load fueling appropriately during those runs so that you can get in the car and be like, hey, kids, let's go. I is- think my heart will always be with endurance sports. Same. I think that's like where I came from. It's inevitably where I'm going. Part of it is because it's so accessible for so many people, whether it's running or doing triathlon or biking. Just I really love it. And on top of that, because I'm such a like numbers person and a math nerd, the nutrition really is math. It's a math problem. Yeah. Especially in people who can really dial themselves in outside of race conditions and they have a really good baseline established. You're like, all we have to do is math. All we have to do is practice with certain types of fuel and math and we can get you to a really good place. And it doesn't matter if you're out there trying to run a sub three hour marathon or if you're out there trying to run four hours and 30 minutes. Like there, there's still a way for nutrition to benefit you. And like, I just did a gravel ride last, like this previous weekend, a hundred kilometers. It was Fernie gravel grind. And the elevation is pretty extreme. Like you're basically kind of like riding up a mountain and then you turn around and ride back. And I come from like a cycling background way, way, way back. And then I didn't do it for a long time, did CrossFit. Now I'm kind of getting back into it. But I definitely don't do structured training for cycling. I don't do, I don't ride the trainer. I don't go out for training runs. Like I pretty much gravel ride with you when you're running, kind of like dick around by myself. And then we mountain bike. And that's like how I train for cycling. But the one thing I really wanted to do for that ride, looking at the the distance and the duration, which I knew would be between, it'd be around five hours. I was like, okay, hey, I just, I really have to do a good job with nutrition because this is not a uh, duration and an intensity that I've been touching. So I did a single day carb load, not a significant one, just like extra carbs. I didn't even track that day. I knew exactly how much I wanted to eat on the course. And I took all of that with me. And I started eating really early. Like, I think I, I started eating at like 40 minutes. I mean, people are still cruising at that point. And I'm like getting gels out or gummies. I'm taking water. I could not believe how good I felt for that entire race. For someone who like doesn't. It was a five hour race. Yeah. I like I really like I never bonked. I never ran out of energy for the climbs. I just kind of like chugged along and ate. I ate and I rode and I ate and I rode. And it was like yep, this still works. This is, this is what you do. And that like, it's not to say, I don't think most people can go out for a hundred K ride on no training and just get by on nutrition. It worked for me. It is an indicator of how powerful nutrition can be. Cause it's definitely the thing that got me through that for sure. One of the Meredith's friends who did the gravel grind with her was like, we were having dinner together. We had three people who had just done the gravel grind. And then I am training for a 50K ultra with my friend, Rich, and we had gone for a two-hour trail run that day. And she, the one of the gravel grind girls was like, why, why do people do that? Like, why does it need to be 100K? And we all were kind of like, for a second, we're like, because it's a good challenge? <laughs> like, it was like, it was kind of a weird question. Like, well, why wouldn't we? yeah. It reminds me of when we were in Washington and we did that run down to the basically down the the canyon, down the gorge to the water and then back up. That was steep. That was steeper than anything that I rode last weekend. And it's really like sort of sick where I can go in my head during those moments. I mean, like you're talking about just major muscle pain, 
just like almost bordering on not being able to pedal the bike anymore. But it's just like you pedal, you pedal, you pedal, you're running up ahead, like you're running faster than I'm biking. And it's like, but in my head, I'm like, I love this. I love this. It's supposed to hurt. It's just this like sick pleasure. I think for me, it's like, you know, you're going to make it to the top. Mm -hmm. And that feeling is so good. Yeah. Like it's, you know, you're going to complete the run. You know that when you cross the finish line at 100K, it's going to feel so good. And that's like, to me, that's like addictive almost. Yeah, it is. But like, it doesn't feel good at the end if you're not, there's not an amount of suffering in the middle. You know what I mean? Like. You Crossing the finish line just doesn't feel as good if it's not like hard yeah. and the harder, the better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and your body forgets pain. So you can do it over and over and over. And every time is kind of like a bit of innocence. I like it's like that Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary, The Pumping Iron, when he's talking about how he like that feeling of like getting a pump to him is as good as having sex. And I was like, yeah, I get that. I don't like I don't necessarily feel that way about like getting pumped. But like <laughs> when I'm like killing myself going up a hill. Yeah, same. Yeah, it's there's, the same. Yeah. Anyways, let's wrap this up for people. Why don't you summarize? So six minutes off your marathon. Good job, by the way. What Thanks. was your your final time? Uh, my final time was 301.31. So you beat your sub 303. Yeah. Quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's awfully close to sub three. Yeah, I know. I actually was running with the sub three group for a while. And I said to the pacer, I was like, and I don't know why I said this, but I'm like, you know, I wasn't going to try to run sub three, but I'm going to, I'm going to hang on for as long as I can to you. And at the turnaround, it was probably like 26 or 27 K. He saw me kind of behind. Yeah. And he was like, he looked at me cause I had talked to him and he was like, you keep like, stay strong. You've got this. Cause it's like, even though I couldn't, I kind of knew that I was like falling off that sub, sub three pace. I knew I could still do well. And, and that 301, it felt from a physical standpoint, incredible. I'm super excited for Philadelphia to keep training and, and hopefully hit that sub three, but I'm mostly excited just for the training. Yeah. I like training through the summer and the fall months. It's the best. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, great job again. I know I've said it many times uh, since you've done that marathon, but it was cool to be there and I got to bike along the course, which was neat. Thank you all for listening and for your continued support. We hope that you found this episode interesting. If you did, please let us know and feel free to like and share our podcast to your friends. It means a lot. We're putting in a lot of effort and yeah, we will catch you on the next one. <laughs>